Okay, let's begin by reading the scriptures. We, this will be the second last sermon on uh, the book of Peter from chapter 3. Let's turn to chapter 3. Uh, these days, usually, I, I use the ESV, the English Standard Version, so unless I make a mark somewhere, it'll be from the ESV. So let, let me read from verse 1 to verse 13. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the, com- where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heaven and, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In the NIV, in many of your Bibles, this passage would be entitled, The Day of the Lord. And this term, the Day of of the Lord appears 22 times in the NIV, 22 times also in the ESV, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is a day of, of judgment and fire. And many D words are used of, uh, to describe this destruction, doom, darkness, dreadful, dissolve. Heavenly bodies will burn, melt, and dissolve. Is it going to be like Nuclear war, I think that's the closest our technology or our minds can, can understand nowadays, nuclear war, or, or it could be some, some asteroid uh, colliding uh, into Earth and, and things melt and there's fire and all that. It's, it's very scary, but also a very fascinating topic. And, and there appears to be no end to the predictions of when this day of the Lord will be. I came up close and personal uh, to this some six years ago in America, in the year 2011. I went for my son's graduation. I landed 
uh, first wanted to land in, in Pennsylvania to visit some friends. I landed on the 18th of May, uh, 2011, and I was greeted by signs like this uh, all over Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is like a very Christian or religious uh, a part of America where the Amish uh, people will live. And so I land on the 18th, and in three days, the world is going to come to an end. I said, oh no, why did I buy a one-way ticket? Or why didn't I not buy a one-way ticket? Then I thought, but if I did buy a one-way ticket and I saved the money on the return trip, what am I going to do with the money when the world ends? Um, so I did a bit of research. I, I, if you can count Wikipedia as a resource material, Wikipedia actually has a very long list of predictions of uh, the end of the world, the second coming, and, and all that. And in one of them, uh, it's got this really long list that stretches all the way back to 66 AD, where people were predicting the second coming of Christ or the day of the Lord or, or the day of destruction. So I picked out the last few, starting with May 13, uh, I mean, this, this May 21. And it was predicted by a guy called Harold Camping, actually, Pastor Harold Camping. And he predicted that the rapture, we'll talk about it, uh, that means Christians will disappear from the earth and and there will be devastating earthquakes, and it'll happen on that day, May 21, 2011. And then God will take about 3% of the world's population to heaven. So that means there are only 3% of real, dedicated Christians. Didn't happen. Then September 29, this guy, Ronald Winlin, uh, predicted that Christ will return on that day, and then he predicted the nuclear explosions uh, in many of the U.S. port cities, and uh, it didn't happen. And, uh, and then he changed the date, okay? First time unlucky, second time try again. Uh, we'll, we'll jump to that later. But on October 21, Harold Camping came public again, and he said, my original prediction on the 21st of May was not wrong. It was a spiritual judgment that you cannot see. But the real one will come on October 21. Didn't happen. So now we come back to Ronald Whelan, who, who, who uh, predicted September 29, right? And now he says, no, 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 uh, wrong. It's May the 27th, 2012, about uh, six months later. Jesus will return, the world will end on that day. Didn't happen. And then some of you might have heard of the Mayan prophecy in this ancient uh, a people group in South America and people dig through the documents and they say that the Mayans have predicted that the world will come to an end on December 21st, 2012. It didn't happen. How it will come to an end, according to the Mayans, it'll be the Earth will be either destroyed by an asteroid or by interplanetary object or by alien invasion or by supernova. So they sort of covered many, many angles. 2014 to 2015, Two pastors, John Hagee and Mark Blitz, uh, because they learned about the blood moon. And indeed, in those days, there was a very special heavenly uh, happening where the, the moon will turn uh, red and they say, oh, that's going to be the end of the world. Didn't happen. This year, May 13, just passed. 2017, this guy called Horatio Belgas says that the world will descend into nuclear war principally because of what was happening in the Korean Peninsula. And, uh, and that this will coincide 
with uh, the 100th anniversary of some visitation of Our Lady of Fatima. I think this is a very Catholic thing. That somebody saw a vision of, uh, of Mary. Uh, the 100th anniversary. Because it didn't happen. Okay? We're still here. Now, Ronald Whelan, uh, Winland came back on the screen uh, to the scene and now he says, okay, forget about the past. First time unlucky, second time unlucky, maybe third time lucky. 2019! 2019, all of you watch out uh, for the eve of the day of Pentecost, which is June the 8th. Okay, so watch out for that. But you notice that same guys, right? They, they try, they try. <clears throat> but the thing is, they are pastors. They have congregations. They have churches. And they are crackpots. <laughs> right? But it breeds it breeds contempt. And I don't blame Christians and non-Christians alike. Say, these guys are crackpots. It breeds contempt. It breeds scoffing so that you also get huge uh, posters like this, uh, mostly in America. And people say, it's been 2,000 years. Jesus isn't coming back. Get over it, you Christians. Get over it. And uh, it's an organization called Godless Utopia. Or something like this, you know, Jesus isn't coming, exclamation mark, but you've got to read the fine print. It says, despite massive stupidity, people are still believing that Jesus will come back. Do you blame these scoffers, as predicted in the Bible, that people will scoff about these things? What does 2 Peter warn us about this? In verse 2, 2 Peter says, remember, remember the biblical prophets, what they said. And then he says, remember the commands of the Lord, what he told through the apostles about this day of the Lord. In verse 5, he says, remember, even if you don't believe in the world coming to an end, you've got to think about how the world began. Remember how God created the heavens and the earth in verse 5. And then he says, remember Noah and the great flood. And, and this is recorded in many, many traditions that there indeed was a great flood. This is in verse uh, 6 of Second Peter chapter 3. And if there is a flood, God, God's warning is that no longer flood, but it'll be by fire next in verse uh, 7. And then it'll come like a thief in the night, this day of the Lord in verse 10, where there will be great destruction, verses 11 and 12. And then Peter asks, what sort of people ought you to be? How should we then live? Well, first of all, I want to tackle the question of what we need not know before talking about how we ought to live. What we need not know, will not know, is the exact day of the Lord. Because Jesus said so. And Jesus says, I don't even know myself, only the Father. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. But concerning that day, Jesus is speaking, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Uh, also uh, recorded in Mark chapter 13, verse 32. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, from verse 1, Paul writes, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Like a thief in the night. And this is re uh, repeated in 2 Peter chapter 3, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and then the heavens will all pass away with a roar. And Jesus doesn't know, 
And yet so many pastors like Harold Camping and what's his name, Ronald something, they say they know. Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians and Peter in 2 Peter both said that it'll come like a thief in the night, meaning at a time when you don't expect it. Because thieves don't come when you expect, right? If you expect it, they won't even be there. So can we get this settled in, in our hearts? I know, I know this is a very fascinating topic. And, and the end times, uh, uh, the, the Christian jargon is eschatology, the study of the doctrine of the end times, and such things as solar eclipses that just happened in America, blood moon a few years ago, earthquakes, and all this. These are fascinating topics. And, and that's why when I, even before I became a believer, the first book in the Bible that I read was Revelation. Because I want to find out, right? It's like a fortune-telling thing. What's going to happen? And, uh, and I'm, I'm beginning to think that, actually, I wrote this sentence like early part of this week. I say, you put up an advertisement or poster on the study of Revelation or the end times or solar eclipses, and I think you will usually get a lot of interest. And to my shock, yesterday's newspapers, I saw uh, a color advertisement, about six inch by six inch. Uh, a, a pastor in, in Singapore was advertising uh, or selling his DVD series on his study of Revelation, $49. Uh, so for four CDs, uh, four DVDs rather. And people, because people will be interested. So I'm beginning to think that maybe I record the sermon, I can sell it, right? But I know where to put it in the Straits Times, okay? Not in some classified advertisement. I put it smack where the obituary is. Ah, when people start thinking about death and all that, and then they say, wow, Pastor Kokfai is preaching on end times. Maybe they'll be interested. But it's, it's not like this. It is important to know about eschatology, and God chose to reveal some of it to us. But for what reason? And also for what reason does He not re reveal everything to us so that we are absolutely clear when the day is and exactly step by step what will happen? Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, so that we may do all the words of this law. There's a reason why something is revealed and yet something is not revealed and the reason is that so that we may obey. See, Jesus doesn't know the exact day of the Lord, but yet, 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 He gave us a lot of signs. He calls it birth pangs. It's like, you know a baby is coming, but you don't know the exact date unless you go induce or, or something. Sometimes even induction may carry you over midnight. You don't know the exact day. But Jesus says, these are the birth pangs. It's happening. And then he says, keep watch. Keep watch because you do not know the day of the Lord. So, what do we know? What do we know? Let me just show you what, just one version, okay? Because there are many, many theories and versions of this. One, one version of what is called the pre-trip or pre-tribulation, pre-millennial, order of Bible prophecy. Okay, I'll explain these words later on. Okay, so what happened? Christ's first coming to earth, Christmas. So he lived on earth about 33 years and then he died 
he was buried and he rose again. So Christ's resurrection and ascension into heaven. And soon after that, the Holy Spirit was given, day of Pentecost, that's the age of the church. The church began. Uh, and then there's a very significant historical fact that uh, we must always look at, and that is uh, the nation of Israel came back, right? 1948, May sometime, May 14, 1948. So this is what we know. In fact, we are here. We are in this age. And then what is typically called the rapture of the church, the rapture of the church based on a few verses in Scripture. Let me read to you. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will first rise. After that, we who are still alive, that is you and I, and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. This is the rapture. Matthew chapter 24, this is from Jesus himself, verse 31. And he will send, and God will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Verse 40, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And on the basis of this, there is this doctrine of the rapture of the church. And some people refer to this as the second coming, but uh, not strictly accurate, and I'll explain later. And so begins, after the rapture of the church, what is accepted now as um, the period of tribulation. Um, period of tribulation, uh, seven years of tribulation. What exactly happens in these seven years is subject to a lot of debate, or even the fact that it's going to be seven literal years, right? You know that with God, a day can be a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. But anyway, it's recorded in the Bible, it's uh, one, two, nine, zero, oh, it's seven years, uh, okay? Uh, two times one, two, nine, zero years or something like that. It'll be a period of great distress, a period of tribulation. The word is tribulation. And this slide is entitled pre-trip or pre-tribulation because this is the view that Christians will be raptured and then this terrible period of uh, tribulation will come. So we are raptured pre the tribulation, okay? So that we do not suffer during the tribulation. And why is this so? Based on certain verses here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And so the interpretation is that the tribulation period is the is wrath of God and God will rescue us so that we do not suffer this wrath. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So hence the pre-trip. But there is another view that is post-trip. And so the rapture of the church will happen after the seven years. Then Jesus will come and take us up to be with him. And there is also some evidence on that. 
For example, in a verse in Revelation chapter 4, verse 14, it talks about there are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So there were believers in the tribulation period, and some people interpret that as uh, post-trip. Jesus will rapture us after this terrible period. And if you have a pre-trip and you have a post-trip, then there's a mid-trip. Okay? So again, some people will say, oh, Jesus will come right in the middle, three and a half years into the tribulation. No matter how tripped up you are, pre or post or mid, this period makes for really scary uh, reading. And you can find it in Revelation. So if you read Revelations, there's a lot of symbolic language, quite hard to read, but, but certain things are, are kind of clear. Uh, it talks about the seven seals and where one quarter of the earth will experience famine and plague and, and death. One quarter. And then there will be earthquakes, the sun will turn black, the moon will turn, turn bloody, it will turn red, as has happened uh, in, in the past. Actually, there's a, a predictable uh, time for that. Then they say, it talks about skies will fall from the sky. And then there is this thing about the seven trumpets, which announce that one-third of earth will be burnt. Okay? Our limited technology, uh, or, or our mind can only think about nuclear war, right? For now, that if one third of the earth is burned, most probable thing that can happen is, is nuclear war or some asteroid uh, hit us. And one third of the sea will be turned to blood. One third of sea creatures like Ikan Gurau and you know, uh, Grupa will, will die. And one third of the sun, moon, and stars will turn dark. One third of mankind will be killed. Okay. I don't know how many people are there on earth right now, is it? 9 billion or 12 billion, one-third, one-third, huh? between 3 and 4 billion will die. And then it talks further about seven plagues and seven bowls of God's wrath. And after all these terrible things have happened in the, the period of uh, the tribulation, then will be the second coming of Christ to earth. Remember I talked about the, the rapture? Rapture, Christ actually doesn't come to earth. He will meet us in the air and then we will go away with him. But this is second coming of Christ to the earth where he will establish his reign. His reign for a thousand years and hence it's called the millennium. Okay? And when Christ comes to earth, that is when Satan will be bound for a thousand years, for a millennium. And I don't know why, but at the end of the millennium, Satan is let loose to create trouble for a while and then he'll be He'll be bound again forever and ever. And after that 1,000 years, this is what happens, a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be a final judgment there, what is called the white throne judgment. And that's when Satan will be banished forever and ever. So, the day of the Lord, where, which one is the day of the Lord? Could it be here, it's called the day of the Lord? or the second coming of Christ, or when this final, final judgment happens, or anywhere in between, it, it is not clear. It is not clear. God has not made it clear to us, although there are many, many studies of, on, on this, and everybody has a different uh, opinion. Um, but we do know enough. We know bits and pieces, as, 
has been revealed to us. And with what we know, it's like, so what? So what? Now let's look at Acts chapter 1, verse 7. So what? And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You know the times and the seasons, and you will be my witnesses. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the answer is right here. Keep watch so that you will be His witnesses. Keep watch so that the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. But what have we made of this business of uh, eschatology, of the end times, of the day of the Lord? I remember this comment once and I will always remember it. You know, it's so long ago. It's in the year 2000. Um, I heard this comment and at that time we had a, a session on uh, Revelation. We invited somebody to, to teach us on a weekday night on Revelation. And I heard this comment and said, oh, uh, in these last days, we really need serious Bible study, especially into Revelation, so that we may be blessed. I said, no, no. This, so what? So that we will be blessed? Okay, it's true. Even in Revelation chapter 1, it says, those who read the words of this prophecy if we take it to heart, we will be blessed. But it's if we take it to heart. Acts 1.7, Matthew 24 tells us, we know all this, so what? And when you have taken it to heart, then you will be his faithful witnesses so that the gospel may be proclaimed to every nation. It is so that you will bless someone, not that I'll be blessed, I'll be blessed. It is for salvation, not for selfish reason. All this that has been revealed to us. I don't know, have you ever felt like I do that, you know, I've read many books, attended many seminars, listened to many talks, even Bible school lectures on eschatology, uh, revelation, and all that, and Jesus seems never closer to coming at all, right? 2,000 years, 59 years as old as I am, doesn't come. And I wish it would come, don't you? Maybe you don't because you're young and you still got so much ahead of you, but I do. I say, why don't Jesus come? When Jesus come, I don't need to see my boss on Monday. When Jesus come, I don't need to prepare sermons anymore. When Jesus comes, no need for O-levels, no need for A-levels, no need for final exams. But what about when Jesus comes and you meet him in the air and those who are not with you, what about those who are not with you, like my pre-believing father, like my pre-believing brother, and, and all, all my friends, they are not safe. They are not safe. And do I then think, oh, I need Jesus in the air, you die your business, I'm there in heaven, you die your business? Would it be like that? Aren't you glad that God doesn't think like me? And Peter knows it very well, because he has tasted of God's long-suffering of God's patience, of God's forbearance, even between the relationship between Jesus and Peter, he has seen the patience of the Lord in just counselling him and, and, and building him up. And so he writes, Peter, 
Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow, even 2,000 years, is not slow to, to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And count the patience of our Lord as what? Slowness? No, as salvation. Salvation to be saved. So it's not about biblical literacy or revelation savvy. It's about readiness. It's about being vigilant. I told you this before. You know, I remember as a very young Christian, I was probably only less than two years old as a Christian, going to church one day. I was in the, the UK studying um, just months after I arrived at the UK. And when I went to this church, Brunswick Parish Church, one morning, Sunday morning, it was empty. Everything was still. And I said, wow, at least at that time I know about the rapture. I said, gosh, they've gone. They're all raptured and I'm left behind. Then later on, I found out what happened. Uh, it was, I, and you can calculate the date. Now I know it's 30th October 1977. There is this thing called daylight saving, which we don't experience here. So that as winter approaches, there's one day at midnight where everybody sets their clock backwards so that you have a longer day in the, in the winter. And that was that day. And at least now I know. But I can still feel the, the fear that you are left behind. And, and I made it, this is 40 years now, exactly 40 years. I said, I will never be complacent again. I will never experience, I never want to experience that fear again because I want to be ready for the Lord's coming. It's about readiness. Readiness. And what does the Bible talk about in, as, as readiness? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. This is about the armor of God, you know, helmet of salvation and breastplate of righteousness and all that. But when it comes to the feet, this is and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Readiness given by the gospel of peace. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord in your heart and always be ready. Always have the readiness to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a, a, a reason for the hope that is in you. And I tell you something amazing happened uh, yesterday during our capping, not distribution, right? Anybody says distribution, you say no. During capping, one of our groups here, I was told only this morning that... Uh, they, they spent three hours capping and they only managed to talk to three households and they couldn't finish the distribution. But it was great because these three households asked them for a reason for their faith. One of them said, you know, uh, my friend was an ex-drug addict, uh, now he's a pastor. What is it about your faith that can transform people like that? Wow! Okay, I ask you this question now. How are you going to answer? Are you ready to answer? It's amazing. And then there were two uh, uh, Malay families who asked about the faith. And they just sat down there three hours in these three different households, I think maybe an hour each, and they began to explain the reason for their faith. And, and this is it. Readiness, reason for your faith. Readiness given by the gospel of peace. Readiness to give a defense of the gospel. If you get a chance like this, great, right? But it's not all the time that you go around your colleagues like, hey, you know, uh, uh, 
Jesus is coming again. Uh, you, how do you preach the gospel? And I came across this very short book, very, very interesting. It's called Becoming a Peace Church. And I want to read a very short portion of this book. It says, The early church was growing rapidly, but in early Christian literature, there are no training programs for evangelism. There's no EE, there's no Alpha course. And practically, no admonitions to evangelism. I know that very clearly because whenever I have to preach a sermon about evangelism, it's very hard to find the verses in the Bible that say, go evangelize, go talk to your neighbor, go do this and go. Very, very few. And he asked why. And then let me conclude. Uh, let me uh, continue. I concluded, not least through reading what early Christians themselves said, that the church before the conversion of Constantine, uh, and, and that is uh, when it became an official national religion, okay? Before the conversion of Constantine was growing because it was living in a way that fascinated people. It spoke to their needs. It addressed their questions. And it didn't so much persuade as fascinate people into new life. The church was good news. It grew by fascination as well as by words, by its creative distinctiveness, by its radiant Jesus-likeness, by its sheer hopefulness. So we come back to the outline of Second Peter. What sort of people ought you to be? Fascinating people. Fascinating people. Fascinating because of our Jesus-likeness. In other words, our holiness, our godliness. Fascinated, fascinating because of our sheer hopefulness that come what may, whoever might be president or prime minister, we are hopeful people because we have hope. And even as the world hurtles into the day of the Lord or into nuclear war with uh, North Korea, we are still hopeful people. Holy and hopeful. You can summarize that from Second Peter. Holy and hopeful. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11 says, Since everything will be destroyed eventually in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Holy and godly. So let's look at holy and godly. To be holy is to be set apart, to be different, to be fascinating. Fascinating because we are not conformed to the world. We are different. When everyone is chasing for power and possessions and pleasure, we will not conform. When everyone is, is doing it, when everyone is having sex outside of marriage and going on holidays and sleeping in the same hotel room as boyfriends and girlfriends or, or boyfriends and boyfriends, we are not. We do not conform. When everybody lies and think nothing of it, we do not, we do not conform. When everybody is using profanities and using the name of Jesus as a curse word, we do not conform. Because we are holy, set apart, different. To be godly is to be godly, is to be godlike, is to be Christ-like, is to be Jesus-like, is to live a life as fascinating as Peter's, who will go to a Gentile's house, Cornelius' house, and eat non-kosher food, who was asked to explain his faith, and who later on had the joy 
of seeing all of Cornelius' household come to salvation. To be fascinating like Peter, who got scolded by Paul publicly, not only that written in scripture which will last for eternity, that I, Peter, was a hypocrite, and Paul wrote about me in the Bible that I was a hypocrite. And then later, later, Peter would now turn and say in Second Peter that Paul's writings are scripture, Holy Spirit inspired. Who's got that kind of humility unless it comes from God? That godliness that he has. So, to be godly is to be Christ-like, is to be saviour-like, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and to eternal life. To be godly is to do all we can to help as many as we can to find safety to find salvation, to escape the destruction, the doom, the dreadful, the darkness of that day of the Lord, whenever that might be. To be holy and to be godly is simply just don't be complacent. Don't be complacent. Get ready. Don't be selfish because we are facing a task unfinished. Let me invite the musicians to come and help us with this song, Facing a Task Unfinished. You know, we, we need to pray. And, and I just heard an amazing story this Tuesday. I was having lunch with uh, a member of PPH. And I was asking him about his life. And he said, hey, you know, I'm a grab hitch driver. Grab hitch, that means uh, you just drive to work and somebody can hitch a ride and you can get, get some money. Right? And he says he gets over $500 a month, you know, just hitching a ride. I said, that's good, everybody wins. They said, well, one day I was driving to work and uh, a hitch driver, uh, a hitch rider came along and I asked her, what's her name? And her name is the same name as his daughter's name. I said, oh, maybe divine appointment. So where do you want to go? Oh, SGH. Oh, who are you visiting? I'm visiting my mom, she's very sick. Oh, can I pray for you? And so he prayed as he was driving, with his eyes open. And then later on, he asked, uh, you know, would you like to be a Christian so that you too can pray for your mom? And she said, yes. He said, what a divine appointment. It's just, just ready, you know. It doesn't take very, very much. Uh, it just takes you to not be an introvert like me because if I ever do a grab hitch drive, I would say, go where? Say, SGH. Then there'll be silence, right? When I reach, I say, Bye. That would be me. But it's just to be ready, ready to share the good news. And, and I just rejoiced when I heard this story on, on Tuesday. One of our own members. One of our own members. So are you ready? Why don't we stand? Let's use this song to challenge our hearts. Because indeed, this task is unfinished.
why don't you take a seat and then uh, let me close in prayer together. Take a seat. Let the words of this song minister to our hearts, challenge our hearts even. Drives us to our knees. Indeed, rebukes our slothful ease. That we who know so much, many people have not even heard of the rapture. We know this, we have faith that we are safe. Whatever happens, whenever the rapture might be, pre or post or mid-trip, that we will be safe. Safe from the wrath of God. So what do we do then? Many people have given their lives in preaching this good news. So goes the word, we now bear the torch that fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Let's be fired by the same ambition. Let's ask God to defend us from cowardice that we dare not say anything. To defend us from lethargy that we are too lazy to, to do or to say anything. Let's pray. Let's pray for divine appointments. Like this PPH church member who, I mean, imagine a, a lady coming into your car with the same name as your daughter. Great. That's a divine appointment. Let there be more of this. But there are also appointments which can be made divine. That we who know full well that our friend, our colleagues, our family, who do not know Christ, that these are the ones that we ought to be reaching out to. We be fascinating people. You don't always have to preach the gospel and say, you sinner, don't you, think, don't you know that the day of the Lord is coming, you'll be burned up. We can be fascinating people through our love, through our forgiveness. People will ask, how can a drug addict ever turn around? Right, he's disappointed so many people and not only that, become a pastor. So let's think of divine appointments that the Lord will set up. Let's pray for that. But let's also ask God for discernment that we will set up appointments that are divine in our family, in our schools, in our places of work. We will do acts of love so fascinating that people will turn around and ask, why? How is it that you're always so forgiving to the boss? Or how is it that you never say a bad thing about the boss when every one of us are doing it? How is it that, that your words are pure? How is it that you never lie? How is it that, that you never curse? Why? And then we are ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. So I want to pray. Let us all pray together that we would be holy, that we would be godly because of Emmanuel, God with us, Holy Spirit in us. So Father God, I want to pray for everyone here. Lord, your love wash over them that they know in this hall that they are beloved of God, 
and that you have so much for us that you would fill us with godliness Christ-likeness that our behaviour will be different our goals in life will be different yes we will succeed as you give favour we will be lifted up in the eyes of the world we will do well in examinations we will make a lot of money but what drives us is different God that our lives will be fascinating it will be godly it will be attractive we will then have the readiness to share the reason for our faith the reason why we are not interested in that pleasure or that power or that possession we have a higher goal so God I want to pray that each one will, will carry that torch in our heart thank you for rewarding us for many material blessings but above all thank you for saving us that we are safe in you and this is a message that we want to bring to many people so God thank you so much we pray in Jesus name